Welcome to In Our Own Defense Podcast, where your host, Attorney A.D. Winters, founder and managing attorney of VeteransDefender.com, and Dr. Dolores Tarver, licensed psychologist. For more information about our podcast, go to In Our Own Defense at Gmail, YouTube, Instagram, uh, Facebook, or you can email us at InOurOwnDefense at gmail.com. Listen, this has been an incredible year. 2020 has been an incredible year. Um, the mission of our podcast is to share truths, to create dialogue that increases our listeners' awareness and a variety of concerns to foster the development of a holistic plan that incorporates mental, physical, spiritual, financial, and intellectual wellness. Uh, when we first designed this show, uh, Dr. Tarvin and I got together and we had a deep discussion about what I felt about her talent. I felt that she is one of the most incredible people I've ever met. She's smart, she's talented, she's hardworking, uh, she's relentless toward helping others. Uh, and she had this, this passion that I saw and I, and I begged her, uh, in fact, to, to partner with me to help uh, launch this. We were in the middle of a pandemic, but we saw that there was an opportunity to provide uh, a plan or a, a sense of, of healing moment, even in these dark times. And, so Dr. Tarver, you and I got together and we discussed this. I told you this vision that I believe uh, that was, was profound with all of your talents that we could use those talents to help. Um, and so we, we started in our own defense podcast. So how are you today? And good to see you as usual. Hey, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, yeah, it has. It has been quite a year, quite a year for us, quite a year for in our own defense, quite a year just as a, as a country. And, uh, you know, um, you know, as I tell the listeners, what did you think initially uh, about this, about this concept or this show? You know, I am one of the things that I appreciate uh, about you is that you're definitely a visionary and you see all the angles. And so, when you came to me, there wasn't a hesitation because I, I know that uh, I trust the work that you do. You're, uh, you're an uh, attorney who has launched his own business. Um, I have a lot of respect for you and your craft um, and the work that you put in and the amount of things you can get done in a day. And so it wasn't a question about whether or not we do this. I think for me, it was the fear of, uh, so we got to hear each other's voices. <laughs> And talk to people on, and so we started out on just audio, and so uh, that was even more nerve-wracking to me because it was just the voice. And here we have now grown to have Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, as you just listed, and we're even doing lives now. We're big time now. So uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> learning this technology has been fun. So I, I was very excited about the opportunity, and when you feel kind of helpless, as I think I was feeling during this pandemic. Just what do I do? There's so much going on in the world, so many negative things that we're seeing, so many, so much pain and heartache people are experiencing. Then, then what can you do to help? And I think for me, this was the call to be able to do something that gave me some meaning and purpose. So I appreciate you um, thinking enough of me to invite me to be your co-host on this show. Yeah, well, I mean, I tell you what, I'm, I'm lucky and honored to be able to uh, go on this as a partner with you. Uh, because I know that uh, you have this worldwide, uh, world-class um, talent that we're lucky enough to be able to expose our people. I think that we have the chance to uh, look at it from what we would have wanted to see. And, and, uh, and we, take foot, we took feedback from listeners. 
And we're able to go and have this discussion with them, with them in mind, and with their questions in mind, with talented people uh, that have been able to do it. So uh, 2020 was not all a loss, but 2020 was definitely challenging. Uh, The purpose of these episodes is for us to do a a year-end review, to look at 2020 uh, and and see what all has happened. Uh, You know, oftentimes in my military career and in the practice of law, uh, it's always good to do what we like to call uh, an after-action review. It's not been a lot of action on our part this year because we've all been stuck in the house, bored in the house, uh, stuck in the house, bored, bored in the house. Uh, and so, but what can we take from this? You know, like we state all the time, we try to give our listeners tools to be able to incorporate into lives to, to move forward. Uh, certain things outside our control. I mean, getting the pandemic, like we're talking about a virus. We don't, don't have any control over that. We can try to do our best, wash our hands, social distance, wear a mask. Uh, stay at home, go when you have to. Uh, but that's, you know, that's easier said than done. Uh, but what what we want to do is is really kind of discuss it. Here's the scene setter. The truth about the matter, um, as we discuss uh, many of the things that have happened in 2020, the first thing that, that anybody in anywhere would be able to discuss would be COVID. COVID-19, the coronavirus and its impact on us. Um, here are the numbers. 18, according to Johns Hopkins uh, University, the numbers are 18.9 million uh, Americans out of the 80.2 million US, I mean, worldwide, 18.9 million Americans, almost 19 million Americans, as of the shooting of this show, with 80.2 million um, worldwide um, and 330 above 330,000 American deaths with um, 1.76 million, uh, one and three quarter uh, million people dying worldwide. Uh, those are some devastating numbers. The numbers that we're, we're flirting with now on deaths are, you know, more people are dying each day. Um, currently more people are dying each day uh, from the backlash of what they presume was the Thanksgiving travel. Uh, people are dying more each day than we did in September 11th with the, with the hijackings uh, and on 9-11. Uh, so these numbers are, are, are damning. These numbers are, are challenging. These numbers are scary. Um, and with that being the backdrop, one of the things that we noticed on a political level that we all experienced this together it was constant consternation, constant contradiction, constant downplaying, and we never got a federal plan. Generally, when something happens, as inept as we may have viewed uh, George W. Bush, um, when September 11 happened, you can remember that all of us galvanized behind our leadership. We all galvanized behind the president of the United States. And he said, either you're with us or against us, and we fought. We all were very supportive of that. We never got that rallying cry this time. We got it downplayed. Oh, it's a hoax. Oh, it's a China virus. Oh, we won't have any problem. Oh, it won't be anything. And now we're at 18.9 million Americans with the virus, 330,000 plus Americans have died. That's the scene. Politically, we never got a federal plan. And then it was 
punt it to the states. Well, we'll let the states do it. And then when that was punted out to the states, the states were fighting amongst themselves. We literally had a lieutenant governor to say that that people in the state of Texas, the lieutenant governor of Texas said that the elderly who we, um, the scientists came out and said that they were the most vulnerable, most at risk. He said that the elderly would rather die than to hurt the economy. This is what the state leadership was providing when we had the vacuum and the gap and the seam of no federal leadership. And then the state leadership, you had state leaders like the Florida governor. The, you had these state leaders providing no leadership, not listening to any of the science, almost as if they were going to wish it away. You know, so from, from this standpoint, um, out of all the things that have happened in 2020, there's so much to get to from news, entertainment, weather, and sports. But, but we're going to start with this countdown on the things that have occurred in this year in review with COVID. So, Dr. Tarver, uh, what did you think um, about the gap of a federal plan versus punting to the states? I mean, I think it definitely has led to why there are such differing opinions now about managing this virus, why there are arguments about why people have to wear masks. Um, while there are arguments about whether or not people should not travel, uh, whether why there are arguments about whether or not I want to have a gathering at my home, because there was so such different information that was being presented. And you gave some good examples of just the states. I'll talk about Georgia. Um, Georgia, we had an argument between uh, the governor, Governor Kemp, and, and Mayor, uh, Mayor Lance Bottoms, who mayor of Atlanta, she put a mask ordinance in place for Atlanta. Governor Brian Kemp attempted to sue her in, in court over her putting this mask mandate in place, even though the numbers of people struggling with experiencing losing their lives to COVID-19 at that point was on a rampage. Uh, now, ultimately, he ended up dropping the lawsuit, but I think that's just a good example of what happens when you don't have a federal plan, when you leave that up to the states and then the cities within those states may have differing opinions about what's going on. Uh, we had Albany, Georgia, where one of the first cities, they didn't even have enough hospital rooms, hospital beds to put people in and had to uh, carry people to other state, other cities and other states for that matter to be able to be served. And so, I mean, that just is, ridiculous when you talk about how leadership should be. So it's caused a lot of problems for people and a lot of arguments over, I'm sure, plenty of dinner tables about how people feel about different things that are that are put in place. You have to have that good leadership in place. And it just wasn't for this COVID-19. Yeah, this was, an, uh, this was the most exceptional model of failure that I had ever seen on a national level of just, I remember when Kanye West, um, you know, after Katrina and um, when Kanye emotionally in that, um, that telethon, when he was by Michael Myers and uh, they were there and Kanye says, George Bush does not care about black people. I don't know what would, would be the equivalent 
in this instance, what uh, the current resident of the 1600 Pennsylvania at the White House, uh, literally, it didn't seem as if he cared about any Americans, irrespective of what color you were. It was just, this is not a big deal. It's gonna go away. There was video after video footage that it can never be taken away. That this is a hoax, no matter whose fault it is. China created it. Let's great. Okay, they did it. Let's save Americans. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> like you, there's nothing to discuss on who did it, who created, it, where did it come from. That's great. If you need that answer as far as fixing it, but we really never got. We politicized a virus. A virus. We we politicized the virus, and that was so when we had that gap of no federal plan, except Operation Warp Speed, and I like to give credit where credit is due, when when finally there became a, hey, wake up, we've got to do something, when that federal plan was put in place to help rapidly execute some sort of vaccine or get some things in place to try uh, a collective plan, we've watched doctors and nurses become heroes. We've watched these first responders, the people in the hospital cleaning the beds, the orderlies, and the uh, uh, nurse, uh, nursing assistants. We watched uh, these people become absolute superheroes. They were doing things like running into a burning building or running into combat every day. And they come home to try to take care of their kids and their families, lead their families. But it's gotta be the most toiling and exhausting thing that they have to be shocked to see us without a mask and without a plan. Uh, the bright spot in that, was watching some leaders of like California and New York, uh, Louisiana on the state level to watch them perform, um, whether the mayor, I mean, the, the, the governor of New York, you know, giving daily coherent briefings nice. uh, that were designed to tell people where they stood, mm -hmm. to watch California and Governor Newsom jump out and make a, a, what we like to call this, this, this thing called mass, where you make the strongest decision at the most critical point, where early on he made a decision to shut the state down, like go into lockdown, the first state to do it, New York was that. In order to these massive populations, they have to do something to reduce. But even that, you know, we've, we've learned that people really want to get back out there and want to be able to connect, want to touch, want to be around each other, need uh, trying to create some sense of normalcy, even though you're doing this against a microbe. Uh, you're trying to create your sense of normalcy against the, the backdrop of a microbe, which you can't, uh, we all know, uh, and taking on more risk. Um, we watched, you know, the governor of Louisiana uh, fight his own attorney general who was trying to fight him about having a lockdown. And, and with this confusion, no federal plan. And then on the state level, confusing plans, Louis, the state of Texas put a ban on Louisianans coming to Texas. Then Floridians, they were banned from coming to Texas. And we put in these, these quarantine, mandatory quarantines in place when, when it was just crazy. Now, Florida, Texas, and California all have over a million coronavirus cases. California has just crossed 2 million. When you don't have a federal big plan, which includes money to protect the people, 
and you don't have a consistent state leadership where people hopping from state to state, we're saying things, they were saying things like, oh, well, that state doesn't, is not affected that much. Well, it's not affected that much until it's affected that much. The numbers are going to keep increasing when we're flying planes, one minute you're in Louisiana, and then the next minute you're taking that virus with you to California, and then you're taking it to Texas. These were the challenges, but the good news story that I saw was in the mayor. Some of these mayors did an exceptional job. Mayor, you know, America's black female mayors faced dual crises during the COVID-19 in protest, but these women used, um, these women are used to uphill battles. So if you think about it, the, the mayor of San Francisco, uh, uh, Mayor London Breed, and the seven cities that surround her, uh, those counties that surround San Francisco County, uh, the Bay Area is what, what we call it. Uh, the Bay Area um, went into lockdown first as the first city and region to do it. Um, uh, the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, that you spoke of, she knew that the science told her uh, to do that, uh, that she had to put in a mandatory mask, even though she's being uh, threatened a lawsuit by the governor of her state. Uh, you know, we watched the Atlanta um, uh, mayor do her thing. We watched the D.C. Uh, mayor do her thing in support, even in these most critical times, the mayor of Chicago, the mayor of Baton Rouge. We can't forget about the mayor of New Orleans, uh, Auntie Titi, as they <laughs> affectionately call her. But these women did a remarkable job. If you think of a mayor's job, not the governor, not the president of the state, a mayor is elected to govern their city, serve and protect the citizens, maintain law and order and bring about economic prosperity. But imagine these ladies doing that in the most drastic times. I feel they did an exceptional job and they continue to do an exceptional job today. What are your thoughts on those efforts of leadership out of the, the three levels, the, the federal, the state and the local level? Uh, do you think that they, they performed exceptional? I think if it weren't for the mayors, a lot of states would be in worse shape than they actually are um you know the the in in particular uh women of, of african-american descent um have showed up during this coronavirus time and and often they felt op they they uh opposition was was presented against them for making these decisions and these are tough decisions and i you know i think about how every city had to also make decisions about what they were going to do for their school districts and so it was our mayors that were an integral part of that, that were in those dialogues, that were in those conversations. And we know that our school systems have been very much impacted by COVID-19. Our, our, our employees, as well as our students, have been very impacted. And if it were not for women taking these risks, um, and they were, they were, they were on these, um, these boards, these um, organizations that were formed during this time to try to help and understand, and each one of them, much like you just laid out, laid out all the risk factors. They were following the CDC. They were looking at um, people that, that study viruses as their means of, of being informed, as opposed to, I think, like you said, the politicizing piece, which is what was happening on the federal level. When you have your president hosting large events, showing up to events, not wearing masks, encouraging people to come and not wear masks, but you have your mayors, when they're doing press conferences, wearing their masks. Um, these women who, who uh, people were very much um, felt uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms when she, when she got on TV and said, hey, please stop. 
um, uh, I need you all to wear your mask. I need for you. I like, I know this is tough. All right. So we have had mayors who um, have gotten on uh, and, and shared with their constituents, like, look, I get it. It's tough. It's hard. We're trying to figure this out. We know that it's impacting our businesses and we're going to try to figure out a plan, but, but we got to shut it down. And for every city that actually did follow those things, we saw those numbers go down across the board. And so that just goes to show when we're all doing what science says and it's people over politics, then that, that makes a huge impact. But I, I do think we need to have a conversation about the school systems because I, I think that is a, a conversation that we cannot go in this, this countdown, if you will, of 2020 and not discuss how schools were impacted. So maybe we can shift the dialogue to, to that topic. Well, I will. I, I definitely I agree with you. I think that was a great segue into what these what these leaders did. If, if you consider this, uh, African-American women haven't been mayors in, in the United States a long time. The first one was in 1971. Uh, Ellen Walker, Craig Jones of a small town of about 745 people became the first black female mayor in the United States. And that was in 1971. And as black women lead these largest cities, some several of the largest cities in the United States, you know, the, there's a new book that's coming out. It's only 14% of the women in the United States uh, are African-American. Only 14% of the women in the U.S. When it's about 13% of African, uh, of the population of this country is, is African-American. 14% of the women in this country are African-American. Um, and there is an upcoming book called Political Black Girl Magic, The Elections and the Governance of Black Females, where it examines the background of 24 women elected uh, of the of the 50,000 since uh, two since the year 2000. So uh, I think that's going to provide a lot of basis of for this bright shining spot in this otherwise extremely dark year. And you speak of education. Uh, there was an there was a there's a, been a lot of articles that talk about the devastation. Uh, of these budgets that are happening, uh, almost half of the nation's 13,000 school districts may be forced to make deep, deeper cuts uh, to the educational system. Uh, and, it's, and it's simply because uh, the funding isn't there, the normal funding that is, that is generated by these school systems is not there. Uh, one of the, the, the highest impacts that, that we've noticed of uh, the economic is that the districts that are most at risk are the low income districts, the districts that share demographic profiles like students that are heavily black, heavily Latino and low income, are the, they're at the point of no return, that they, they're going to have drastic cuts, that these kids are gonna be uh, the negative beneficiaries of these drastic cuts. They're gonna be impacted by it, the high income uh, schools, we find that that they're going to be able to survive because they have the resources to be able to survive. A pointed example of this was was if you if you know anything about Detroit, uh, Michigan, uh, there's a suburb in Detroit called Beverly Hills, Michigan. And if you look at the study that that well, they did the side by side comparison between uh, the impact of education in Detroit schools, Detroit day schools versus Beverly Hills, Michigan schools, where Beverly Hills is a, a high income um, part of, of, of the county and the, the area of Detroit. And those kids, the day they were let out of school to switch to remote learning, 
they were given a laptop. They were given access to a Wi-Fi card or MiFi card where they could have access to the internet. And they had a 90 some odd percent um, attendance rate remotely. Fast forward over to the, to the Michigan side, uh, those kids were suffering drastically and their attendance rate, I mean, on the Detroit side, their attendance rate was extremely low. Uh, an example of a, um, an African-American uh, child, this 15-year-old this, uh, Michigan girl that was in, um, they took it so serious in Beverly Hills that a, a teenage daughter, a teenage little girl didn't do her homework online uh, in, in Beverly Hills, uh, Michigan. So a judge sent her to juvenile detention because part of her um, probation was that she had to do all of her schoolwork. And when it got back to the judge that, that she had not done all of her schoolwork, she was sent to a probation. Uh, she was uh, violated as a probation and sent, the judge violated her probation and sent her to a facility during a pandemic. Sent her to a juvenile detention facility during a pandemic. Now, if you, based on that, it makes me believe that the education system is starting to come down, even in a pandemic, on uh, minorities and low incomes family. What do you think about the gaps in education or how this pandemic, uh, COVID-19, has affected our educational system? One of the things that we know about the pandemic is whatever disparities were ex already in place existed, then this pandemic has just exacerbated them. So that's a good example where you just laid out between these, these school districts who are not that far apart in terms of miles, but are miles apart in terms of these gaps that we're seeing in the resources. And so you just highlighted that what happens when my parents in this particular school district in Detroit, all of our parents are working class parents. And so they're leaving the home. And so we're at home trying to essentially raise ourselves, get on the computer ourselves. And again, that's if we even have computers, one. Two, do we have Wi-Fi? And just because you have Wi-Fi doesn't mean it's good Wi-Fi. Well, the Wi-Fi keeps dropping, well, if you're getting a lot of buffering, right? This is frustrating to a student. And if I don't have someone home to monitor me, um, am I even getting up on time? to get to class, what's my motivation, right? Because we know that our students do not like this virtual learning, uh, uh, the majority of them don't like it because if you have any kind of learning disability, you have any kind of challenge in instruction, then there is no way for your teacher to accommodate all of those different learning needs in this virtual setting. You can't get hands-on if you need it. You can't have someone essentially be able to, and now in the larger school districts where there are more resources, we have more educators, you can go into breakout rooms. You have people who can assist you, but we're talking about a school district where there's not limited resources. I guarantee you they do not have people to be able to go into breakout rooms with these kids, or do they even know how to break out into these different rooms? And then what happens when there's a behavior problem? What happens if I have inattention issues? What happens if I, I need glasses and I'm struggling to try to keep up? I haven't had an opportunity because of COVID to go get glasses. So there are just so many factors when you talk about limited resources that are affecting our young people. And then we're already in a high risk environment because we have more students who are, are um, you know, probably at, at the brink of poverty in those schools. So guess what? Their rates of COVID are probably higher. So what happens when 15 teachers in this one school district are out due to COVID? What's gonna happen to the school? 
system. So there's just so many different layers of that. And we're seeing that our students are getting further and further behind that are in these low income environments. So what are some of the challenges? You know, if we have kids that are uh, 504 plans, uh, you know, at risk youth that, that have, uh, like you said, learning disabilities, behavioral uh, challenges, what, what are some of the gaps that, that you've noticed um, that people are, are putting in place? I mean, what, what are we doing? Are we are gonna allow this generation to just, we're gonna lose them? I mean, th these are, every year counts. That I don't care if they're a senior in high school, that really helps them catapult into college. If they're, you know, my son just graduated. All of uh, last year, uh, in, in this 20, last school year, in this 2020, you know, when you have these kids going through this, I have a four-year-old that's missing critical learning time that she should be with her peers, um, learning and going through the emotional learning, socialization learning, and academic learning right now, these gap years that are critical. So what do we do? What are parents going to do to bounce back? How do we go to school year-round once we all get vaccines? What is the what are some recommendations? What do you think is going to happen after this or are these challenges? How, how do we address these? Well, I've, I've seen some people try to do what they can to help with the gap, right? So we have seen um, some of our providers come out and they are uh, setting up buses that have Wi-Fi on there. So students are being able to, to access that. Um, we are having companies donate computers to, to laptops to these students to be able to use. We are seeing some retired educators come out of retirement and they're forming mm. these little pods. Um, so, hey, if you parent have to go work, um, we'll have five students all gathered together here. We'll space them out. We'll have some windows open. We'll allow them to be able to be supervised by this retired educator in this place. So people have been able to try to make some of these adjustments but again, that in, by and large is not the majority of people's experiences. And so what's going to happen after this? It is, it is always been um, for me, uh, though I, I own that I am not an educator, uh, that it is better for kids to go to school year round. That, that a long summer off, um, the gaps just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so having year round school allows those gaps to kind of close in a little bit gives um, students who struggle and may, when they're away from school, one, not be able to have the food they need, um, two, not be able to be in an environment where people actually affirm them. Uh, we know child abuse rates went up during this coronavirus experience. We know that we have people at home that don't know how to use computers, and so they're not able to help their students, right? So now my student is at school and they're getting all these resources. So that would absolutely be something that I would like to see, but I know that that is not going to be the case. So um, community organizations. We've seen a lot of organizations step up. We've seen churches step up. We've seen Greek letter organizations step up. Um, we have we have seen young people step up in Korea. I'm so proud of our young people who are providing resources to people they know don't have. And so we have, and that's the resiliency of COVID too. We have seen some of this. I think we'll continue to see some of this, but in our rural areas and in our areas with the highest poverty rates, we do know that that is going to be a significant challenge to overcome. 